We'll be in 1 Kings 3 primarily, but there was one verse I wanted to show you here. So this morning's sermon is a glimpse of Jesus' wisdom, a glimpse of Jesus' wisdom. You know I like types and shadows, and Solomon serves as one of the strongest or clearest in all of Scripture. Um, In particular, I'd say to think about the kingdom that Solomon ruled over, the glory of it. Really, Solomon is the king who's recognized as ruling over uh, Israel during their golden years, but in a sense, he's prefiguring or he's foreshadowing the millennial reign of Christ. And so the, um, the glory of the kingdom that Solomon reigned over really prefigures or foreshadows the glory of the kingdom that our, that our king will rule and reign over. Jesus said the entire Old Testament is about him. And as we look at a few verses here in 1 Kings 10, I want you to look for Jesus through them. Or in a sense, as I read them, just consider how much these verses could really be said about Christ himself. Look at verse 23. 1 Kings 10, 23. It says, Thus King Solomon, he excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom. I mean, who does that sound like it would primarily be about or in a true and greater way about Christ, the king of kings? Verse 24, The whole earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, as the whole earth will in the future seek the presence of Christ to hear his wisdom, which God had put into his mind. Verse 25, Every one of them brought his present articles of silver and gold, garments, myrrh, spices, horses, and mules so much year by year. And so I remember reading this account some years ago, earlier after I'd become a Christian, and to be candid with you, I was actually a little uncomfortable with it. I was uncomfortable with how highly Solomon had been exalted in the minds or hearts of the people. In a sense, I was uncomfortable with the way that the people were treating Solomon, because it almost seems like they're doing what with him? It almost seems like they're worshiping him. It says the whole earth is seeking his presence. Everyone wants to hear his wisdom. He's already unimaginably wealthy. You still have all these people going some distances to to bring him these offerings uh, and these gifts. And so the verses are about Solomon, but they really prefigure Jesus ruling over his kingdom and the adoration that he should receive. Now, at this time, you see that people were also seeking Solomon's wisdom. And in a sense, that prefigures or foreshadows the wisdom with which Jesus himself will reign with. We, we live under individuals who have authority over us who we hope are attempting to make wise decisions, but really it's only when we're under Christ's reign over the earth that we'll be under individuals who have perfect um, justice and perfect wisdom. Speaking of the whole earth coming to hear Solomon's wisdom, Jesus said, Matthew twelve forty two, the queen of the south will raise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, but behold, something greater than Solomon is here, referring, it says something versus someone, because it wasn't just Christ, but it was also Christ coming in the kingdom that he brought with him. When Christ came from heaven to earth, really, it was the kingdom of God coming from heaven to earth. And so Jesus says there's something even greater than Solomon's kingdom that is here. So Jesus condemned the generation in his day, primarily the Jews and the religious leaders, because his point was that if the queen of Sheba in her day would come to hear Solomon, and how much more, and, and people could appreciate what he said, seek his presence, then how much more should my counsel be, be sought? How much more readily should people receive the wisdom that I'm sharing, whether through my, my teaching and preaching, through the parables, but also through the way that I'm, that I'm living my life? And so he said that the queen of Sheba would condemn that generation of unbelief that was in Jesus's day. Now, in this morning's sermon, we're going to be in 1 Kings 3, if you want to turn there. I just wanted you to see this small um, parallel between Solomon and Jesus, because I think that as we look at this account, 
and we see the wisdom that Jesus, uh, that Solomon manifests, it really prefigures or foreshadows the wisdom that Jesus himself will manifest. We see Solomon on the throne dispensing wisdom, but really it's a glimpse or window into Christ on the throne and the wisdom that he'll demonstrate in a really uh, truer, greater way. So in our last sermon, we're in 1 Kings 3. We've been in a series on wisdom. I've been looking at different places in Scripture that I believe help us uh, understand it, appreciate it better, want to pursue it in our lives. We started looking at 1 Kings 3 because we saw in James 5, it says, if any of you ask, if any of you lacks wisdom, ask for it. God gives it liberally. We see a picture of that or example of that in Solomon who asks for wisdom and gives it liberally. We read the first half of the account, which is the record of that, but then following that flows this example of Solomon using that wisdom that was given to him. So he gets the wisdom in the first half of the chapter, and then the second half is this account that we'll look at where we get to see Solomon exercising that wisdom that God has given to him. And through this, I want you to see how it really prefigures or foreshadows the even greater wisdom of our Savior and the ways in which he will use it when he judges and, and uh, the justice that he demonstrates over the earth. I've told you before, quite a few times up to this point, I believe, that when God gives us wisdom, he isn't giving it to us so that we would be uh, prophets, you might say, who know the future or understand why God is doing what he's doing. Instead, God gives us wisdom so that we can navigate through the trials that we face. Trials are tests, tests are trials. We give wisdom so that we can pass those tests. And in this account, we'll see that Solomon faces this trial or test, and he uses the wisdom God's given him to pass it. Look with me in 1 Kings 3, verse 16. It says, Two prostitutes came to the king and stood before him. The one woman said, O oh, my Lord, this, wisdom, or this woman <clears throat> and I live in the same house, and I gave birth to a child while she was in the house. Then on the third day after I gave birth, this woman also gave birth, and we were alone. There was no one else with us in the house. Only we two were in the house, and this woman's son died in the night because she lay on him. And she arose at midnight and took my son from beside me while your servant slept, referring to herself, and laid him or her child at her breast and laid her dead son at my breast. When I rose in the morning to nurse my child, behold, he was dead. But when I looked at him closely in the morning, behold, he was not the child that I had born or had given birth to. But the other woman said, no, the living child is mine and the dead child is yours. And then the first woman said, no, the dead child is yours and the living child is mine. And thus they spoke before the king. So this can seem like a fairly odd account. What's more than likely taking place is they were harlots. They were living in the same brothel. They became pregnant around the same time. And because of the decisions, the sinful ones that they'd made in their lives, they'd created um, relative messes for themselves. They lack husbands, which the consequence in this situation is it also means that they lacked witnesses to what had taken place. Whether in our day or in the Old Testament, matters are established by the mouth of two or three witnesses. And so there was no one to really say who was right and who was wrong, or who was telling the truth and who was lying. So it looked like a, a situation that, or seemingly an impossible situation to resolve since it's one woman's words against the other one. My suspicion is this is why it had reached Solomon because uh, nobody under, under him had been able to resolve it. So look what Solomon does in verse 23. The king said, The one says, This is my son that is alive, and your son is dead. And the other says, No, but your son is dead, and my son is the living one. And the king said, Bring me a sword. So a sword was brought before the king. 
And the king said, Divide the living child in two and give half to the one and half to the other. Now, this sounds fairly outrageous to us, and my suspicion is it sounded fairly outrageous to the individuals in Solomon's day who heard him say this as well. But the fact is they would have recognized that he was doing something that had some precedent in the law. Um, I'll just read it. Exodus 21:35. When one man's ox butts another's so that it dies, they shall sell the live ox and share, or split the price of it, and the dead beast they shall also share, or split. And so while the people would have disagreed with what Solomon was saying, they would have recognized that he was doing something that had precedent in the law, but they would have said, well, instead of, if this is what was expected to be done with an animal, apparently our king wants to do this with this child. Uh, obviously, he had no intention of doing this with the child. Since the situation seemed unresolvable, what Solomon needed at this moment more than anything else was wisdom. And what he did, I think, sets a tremendous example for us. If you notice, when facing this seemingly unresolvable or impossible situation, he says, bring me a sword. And this brings us to lesson one. Cling to the sword when you need wisdom. Lesson one, cling to the sword when you need wisdom. talked about types many times even in this sermon up to this point we've talked about solomon serving as a type of christ generally if we talk about types and shadows we're talking about types and shadows of christ but there are types or pictures of other things in scripture for example if i said what is a type or picture of sin what would you say what are a couple things that serve as types or pictures of sin what leprosy leprosy is one of the premier pictures or types of sin in the new testament first corinthians 5 if sin is not dealt with in the church then it can spread like what like leaven or yeast leaven or yeast serves as another picture or type of sin we also have pictures or types of the word of god probably the second most famous example would be a lamp psalm 119 105 your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path we can imagine why a lamp would serve as a as a picture or type of god's word just as a lamp helps direct our steps showing us where to step or what not where not to step what direction to take or not to take so too does the word of god do the same for us probably the most famous type or well-known type or picture of the word of god would be a sword ephesians 6 17 the sword of the spirit which is the word of god when christ returns i don't take this as literally as it's described i assume it's figurative but it says that he returns and all of all of the lord's enemies are defeated or destroyed or slain by what the sword that proceeds from his mouth now i suppose or i'll just read the verses revelation 19 15 from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron revelation 19 21 the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse when you are able to speak creation into existence you don't have any trouble speaking the death of your enemies right and so i take this to mean not literally that there's the sword coming from christ's mouth but really that he's just able to speak and then all of his enemies are slain it's it's effortless for him there's no struggle here uh you know psalm 2 the nations can rage against christ but there there'll be no sweat on his brow when he's when he defeats all of them at his second coming but the point is you also see again how a sword serves as this type or picture of the word as it comes forth from christ's mouth now when solomon needed wisdom he looked for a sword and this is the same thing that we should do i mean what are you going to cling to when you need wisdom when you face a test or a trial when you face something that seems uh, unresolvable and you don't know what to do you do what solomon did and you ask for a sword and that's what you cling to you don't 
Um, you don't turn to the news. You don't turn to a talk show. You don't turn to man's wisdom. You don't look and see what secular um, books or research are going to direct you. You look for God's word and you cling to that. Generally, when we're trying to figure out what to do in our lives, if we will spend the necessary time in God's word, we will gain the wisdom needed to make the right decision. So prior to the canonization of scripture, prior to the the completion of scripture, God spoke audibly to people. Even Solomon himself, two times. I mean, earlier in this chapter, we see where God spoke audibly to Solomon. Solomon heard him. There's the contrast between David and Solomon. It's interesting. We some, Sometimes people want so much or expect so much to be able to hear from God audibly, but Solomon's father, David, seemed to have lived his life very much like we do, which is what? By faith. David read the scriptures, knew God, knew God's will through the scriptures. Uh, Solomon was condemned because God had appeared twice to him and spoken to him, which gave him so much higher accountability. There were individuals in the Old Testament, primarily prophets, some individuals in the, Old Te- in the New Testament early on in the book of Acts, primarily apostles who did hear from God. This is prior to the completion of Scripture, but now we expect to hear from God um, not audibly like that. I would discourage anyone. I, actually, I would discourage you from being discouraged about not hearing from God audibly. That was something I kind of had to be shaken loose from early in my Christian life from some charismatic friends who uh, influenced me a little bit. It left me discouraged that I wasn't hearing from God as they tried to convince me that they supposedly did. But here's the wonderful thing. You do hear from God. When you read the Bible, those words on the page are spoken as clearly to you as anyone heard from God in the Old Testament. To read a verse is to hear directly from the mouth of God and have the word as revealed to you uh, as clearly as anyone who heard from him in the Old Testament. And so there's nothing lacking for us. It is a wonderful blessing. I mean, for the person who says they want to hear from God, they have, uh, if they have a Bible, then they have every opportunity to hear what God would say to them. And so when we're looking for wisdom, then what we need to do is we need to cling to the sword. We need to see what God would say to us through the Scripture. And generally, it's an issue of uh, labor. Are we willing to labor in the Word to, to determine God's will for us? I'm not guaranteeing, you, maybe you'll be fortunate enough that when you're trying to pass a test or deal with a trial, that you open the Bible and you happen to turn right to the verse that God wants to give you to direct your, your uh, course of action. But for, the most, for <laughs> the most part, you're going to have to study. You're going to have to pray. You're going to have to labor over the word. You're going to have to uh, spend some amount of time meditating on what God is saying to you through it. But you can be confident that if you are willing to labor in the scriptures in that respect, that God will faithfully direct you and show you what it is that you should do. My suspicion is it's not usually an issue of us not being able to figure out what to do. It's usually an issue of us not wanting to put in the time necessary to determine what to do. Or the other issue is we do know what we should do. We just what? We just don't want to do it. It's not attractive to us. And so we become a little bit like Rehoboam. We get counsel it's not the counsel we like, so we decide to do something else. Let me give you another illustration that I hope we'll take with you. This is, I, I offer this more devotionally than anything else, but it's one that has been a great encouragement to me throughout my Christian life regarding what I, what I should do. I hope it might be an encouragement to you too. So Ephesians 6, a little before we see that the Word of God is a sword for us, we're told that we're not engaged in a physical battle, we're engaged in a spiritual battle. 
and that's why we don't have a physical weapon to fight with. We do have the Word of God, which is a spiritual weapon to fight with. Well, in the Old Testament, there were individuals, and they fought physical battles. I think in many respects, they can be pictures of the spiritual battles that we fight, and even some of those enemies serving as pictures or types of the spiritual enemies that we, that we face, the devil, the world, and the flesh. There was an individual, his name was Eliezer, and he was one of David's mighty men, and he was engaged in this conflict, and listen to what it says. 2 Samuel 23, 9. Among the three mighty men was Eleazar, and he was with David when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there for battle, and the men of Israel withdrew. So apparently the conflict had increased such that some of the Israelites fled or, you know, retreated, maybe afraid for their lives. Kind of a low point for them. But listen to this. In the next verse, it says that Eleazar rose. He struck down the Philistines until his hand was weary, just, you know, swinging his sword back and forth for so long, and his hand clung to the sword, and the Lord brought about a great victory that day. And so God was able to bring about this great victory through Eliezer as he continued fighting. My understanding is sometimes if a man was to hold on to his sword for so long, it would freeze in that position, and even when the battle concluded, he wasn't able to release it. They'd have to take his hand, put it in warm water until, you know, I suppose maybe the cramps would go away, and he was finally able to open his hand and release the sword. And I've just always liked that image, that as we go through this life and we're fighting uh, the spiritual battles that we face, that we would cling to the sword in such a way. It's a, it's a um, even some of the parallels between how David's mighty men would have become so skilled with the sword. I, I could just ask you this. How useful would David's men have been if they were not skilled with the sword? What service would they have been for their king? Uh, of what real benefit would they have been for David's kingdom had they uh, no real skill with the sword? And so it's a great picture of what our relationships should be like with the sword in the spiritual battles that we're facing. The ways that these men became skilled with their swords, I think, can serve as a picture for us or as an example for us that we will not be too mighty if we aren't skilled with swords. And so how do we develop skill? Well, first, it takes practice. We need to spend an amount of time practicing with our swords or reading and studying it. I remember in the Catholic Church, there was this very... uh, you know, sometimes I share things with you, and it truly did not seem absurd or foolish to me at the time. Now I look back, and there was this superstition in the Catholic Church associated with things that you might kind of keep close to you. And if you know Catholics, you can go into their home, and you'll generally recognize this to be the case because of the statues that they'll have. They'll, they'll happen to think that having these statues with them in, in, in provides some spiritual blessing for them. It could be rosaries, one of the other things happened to be Bibles. Now, most, most of the Catholics I knew, they never read their Bibles, but they felt good about having their Bibles in their homes or near them. But the, a Bible that is not studied, a Bible where the, uh, the owner doesn't labor in it, or the person who, you know, concludes service, goes home, takes their Bible, and tucks it under their seat until they return to service the next Sunday, then that's a person who's not going to become skilled with a sword. And that's also a sword that is going to be of no real benefit to the person. So it takes an amount of practice. It takes an amount of experience. That's the other thing. They practiced and they were experienced. Many of these men, they seem to have been, um, at least David's mighty men, professional soldiers. I can't imagine the number of battles that, that they fought. You know, how frequently. They, they must have just 
kept their sword closer to them than they kept anything else. I'd be surprised if they did anything in their lives without having their swords near them because that's what they did. They just fought regularly. If we can appreciate that we are in spiritual battles, which we are always in, then we should appreciate always having to have our swords with us. We need to have our Bibles. We need to apply them. We need to read them, study with them, be experienced with them. It's of no use to learn what the Bible says, to memorize verses, but not have the experience that comes from applying it to our lives. I think as John prayed this morning, that we wouldn't be just hearers, but doers. The, the experience that these men had from using their swords allowed them to be so talented um, as they fought for their king. And that's really the same for us that the more we use our swords, the more that we apply them to the situations we face, the more, um, you know, battles we fight and and experiences we gain from uh, contesting with the enemies we face uh, with using our swords, then the, the more skilled that we become. Now, if we go back to this account with Solomon, of course, he had no intention of cutting this child in half, but he knew that the mother the child's mother was going to object, which is exactly what happened. Look in verse 26. It says, the woman whose son was alive, she said to the king, and then notice this, her heart yearned for her son. Just notice how this revealed her heart. Oh, my Lord, give her the living child, and by no means put him to death. But the other child, he shall be neither mine nor yours. Go ahead and divide him. So there are individuals, they're evil um, like this woman was, they suffer loss, and their greatest desire is for someone else to suffer the same loss. There are people, and when they hurt, what uh, they want more than anything else is for other people to hurt similarly. And so for this woman, because she's lost her child, then she wants this other woman to lose her child too. The other woman, she objects though, look in verse 27, and then the king answered and he said, give the living child to the first woman and by no means put him to death. She is his mother. And all Israel heard of the judgment that the king had rendered, and they stood in awe of the king because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. And right here, another way in which Solomon looks so much like Jesus, according to, there's, do you wish we knew more about Christ's childhood? Am I the only one that wishes that <laughs> we learned a little more about him? Unfortunately, most of the, I mean, I don't want to sound, I shouldn't say unfortunate. That almost sounds as though I'm being critical of scripture, which we know is perfect, but I could desire to know a little bit more about Christ's youth uh, and, his, and his childhood. We just have this one account, which was him at the temple. But what's interesting is bracketed on that account are these two verses that both talk about Christ's wisdom and him growing in wisdom. So if you write in your Bible, you can circle the words, the wisdom of God was in him, and you can write 1 Corinthians 1.24. If you write in your Bible, you can circle the words, the wisdom of God was in him, referring to Solomon, but you can write 1 Corinthians 1.24, which says that the wisdom uh, that Jesus became for us, the wisdom of God. There's the sense in which God gave Solomon wisdom, but Jesus was what? He was wisdom incarnate. He was the embodiment of wisdom. When Christ came from heaven to earth, or when God came from heaven to earth in the person of Jesus Christ, it was wisdom coming from heaven to earth. Where Solomon was wise, Jesus was wisdom. And so you can see the wisdom that God gave Solomon manifested, but when you see Jesus walk or live or make decisions, you're seeing literally wisdom in action. Let me get you to think about something 
as Solomon faced this account and he had to use the wisdom that God uh, gave him, he had to use that wisdom because he couldn't use what to determine who was telling the truth or who was right or wrong. He couldn't use the women's words. He couldn't use their words. They sounded equally right. They sounded equally true. It was simply one woman's words against the other. And so I guess I would say simply, if he couldn't examine their words, what did he have to examine? It's really the same thing we should strive to examine when we counsel people. He had to examine their hearts. He had to look past the words that they were saying to their hearts. And this is what Solomon did. He told this story, and then look in verse 26. It says, her heart yearned for her son. Solomon was able to look. He was able to see the heart of this woman for her son, and that was what allowed him to render the perfect judgment. Look in verse 9, 1 Kings 3, verse 9. What did Solomon say that he wanted to be able to do? He wanted to be able to discern between what? Do you see it there? It's not your question or anything. It says he wanted to be able to discern between good and evil. Well, what's interesting is as you look at this account, it flows so smoothly from the previous verses that what Solomon did was discern between good and evil. Is it too much to say that when these two women stood before him that one of these women was evil? I mean, she wanted to see this child executed simply so that the other woman wouldn't uh, receive the child. And so when Solomon says, I want to be able to discern between good and evil, in this account, that is what you're seeing. You are seeing him perfectly being able to discern between good and evil. Solomon asked for this sword. And it's very fitting because it's as though this sword, which in a sense was the, the story, it acts it acted like a sword in the sense that it split these two women down the middle and then revealed their hearts to him. And this is fitting because what are we told that the Word of God does in the New Testament? It reveals the heart, which is what Solomon did when he exposed the hearts of these women. If you write in your Bible, you can circle the word sword and you can write Hebrews 4, 12, and 13. If you write in your Bible, you can circle the word sword and you can write Hebrews 4, 12, and 13, because those, those two verses pretty perfectly describe what Solomon did here. And then you can turn to Hebrews 4. We won't turn back to 1 Kings 3. Hebrews, James, Peter, toward the end of the New Testament. Okay, look at me. Hebrews 4, 12, familiar verses here. It says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow. And then notice this, it says, discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And isn't that exactly what Solomon did? Wasn't he able to look at these women's hearts and have their hearts revealed? Wasn't he able to reveal the thoughts and intentions of these women? Verse 13, it says, No creature is hidden from his sight, neither of these women was hidden from Solomon's sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And so the main point of these verses is really that the word of God looks deeply at us or deeply into us. It can pierce even, I mean, that's language, this language of um, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, even down between joints and marrow, so that it can discern between thoughts and intentions of the heart is really just a dramatic way to describe how deeply and intimately the Word of God can look into us and consider what we're doing, uh, why we're doing it. And this brings us to lesson two. 
The word is a sword that cuts to the heart. The word is a sword that cuts to the heart. If I ever taught a, a, a class or a workshop on counseling, this would be one of the accounts that I would go to because I think that Solomon does such a great job uh, doing what we should do in counseling. Now, I, when I talk about counseling here for a moment, you should not, you should not tune out and think, well, because I'm, I'm not a pastor or I'm not an elder or I'm not a home fellowship leader, then I'm not responsible for counseling people. If you're a Christian, you're responsible with counseling people because you have a responsibility toward your brothers and sisters in Christ. And what is counseling? It's people dealing with trials or tests and them needing God's word to bear on it and them coming to you for them to give them the word of God that is going to allow them to navigate through or have the wisdom needed to handle this situation well. And so every, every believer should feel that they are a counselor because every believer has the responsibility to um, share the word of God with people that come to them facing trials or facing tests. And so the reason I mention that is I just think Solomon did a phenomenal job of exposing the heart, which is what we should do in counseling. When people come in, it's very much like these two women. There's so many words. There's so, so much being said, sometimes, you know, angrily. And it's so it's necessary. It's an absolute, absolute necessity to be able to look past those words to the heart or have the heart exposed. Proverbs 20, verse 5, it says, The purpose in a man's heart is like deep water, but a man of understanding or a man of wisdom will be able to draw it out. And that's what Solomon did, is he was able to draw out the truth from these women because he's a man of understanding and he was able to um, reveal their hearts. And this is one more way that Solomon looks like Jesus. That's the reason that we're talking about this. I think we're getting a glimpse into the wisdom of our Lord. He did that with these women, what Jesus does with us. Now, before I go any further, I want to briefly explain something. As I read God's Word, and I hope this is the case for all of you, I'm uh, almost always learning new things. Even when I approach accounts that I have some familiarity with, I'm generally gaining information that allows me, or understanding that allows me to, um, you know, preach or teach these verses, have greater insight into them. Occasionally, and I'm glad that this <laughs> doesn't happen more often, I'll be studying something, and I'll, pre I'll be presented with the reality that what I have believed is wrong. And I mean, no, nobody wants that to happen very often, right? Because none of us want to think that many things we believe are wrong, but we should all have the humility to acknowledge that none of us know everything. I think someone said one time that the greatest theologian is about 80% correct, and perhaps even that's a little bit too generous, right? And so we all must approach God's Word understanding that there are things that we don't um, see accurately, and we should be willing to have our thinking or our understanding shaped or changed by God's word when we are confronted with those things that can, I mean, what's the, that conflict with what we have previously believed? What's the alternative to that? The alternative to that is to be proud and then to force scripture to fit our beliefs or to fit our theology. And some people can't do that. It can be especially challenging if you have grown up in a theological system or believe something for some number of years, then to have that challenge and then have to have that theological framework um, you know, per perhaps reject it like I had to do when I left the Catholic Church. I mean, it wasn't like an adjustment. It was, an, it was a paradigm shift. It was leaving the go uh, gospel. 
and I say that word loosely, which is really no gospel at all of salvation by works to embrace justification by faith. So it was a radical shifting of my understanding. Well, there's a couple other times, even since becoming a pastor, where I've read something and I was challenged, and I thought, you know what, this is what I previously thought, but I no longer think this is true. It, it might not, it could take uh, hours of studying. It could take some number of days. There were a few days for that to take place. And that's really what took place for me some years ago when I was preparing, when I was teaching through Hebrews, and I encountered uh, Hebrews 4.12. If you, because if you've been in the church for any length of time, then you've heard this verse quoted many times, and more than likely you have heard it applied to Scripture, to the pages of Scripture. What I learned as I was studying, or I saw this verse applying to the divine Word of God, the person of Jesus Christ, or I saw Hebrews 4.12 applying to the second person of the triune nature of God versus referring to the pages of Scripture. And so because we need to be receptive to what God wants to say to us through His Word and even be willing to adjust our beliefs, then I want to encourage you, if you've never heard this before, to just consider what I'm going to say. Unfortunately, I don't have all the time that I would probably like with this. You might have to go home and and, uh, pray about this or spend some time laboring in God's Word to see if you come to the same conclusion, but just consider for a moment some of the things I'll say and that perhaps just because something has been said many times, because here's what, I'm I'm not naive enough to think that you are not going to hear something that contradicts with what, what I'm about to tell you. My suspicion is once you leave here, you will probably hear more people who will disagree with what um, I'm going to say because m- most people have seen the, this verse differently. But I just want to remind you, the question is never, um, what does this famous person say? The question is never, what does this person on the radio say, or what does this person at this conference say? And I would say the question isn't even what I, as, and the question is not what I as your pastor say. The question is, what does God's Word say? We should allow the Bible to interpret the Bible. And so, when we look at these verses, just consider if what I'm sharing with you allows Hebrews 4.12 to apply to the person of Jesus Christ. So, here's a few, exam- few reasons I think that. First, look at verse 13. It begins with the word and, which shows that it's flowing from verse 12, which means that it's continuing the thought that was begun in verse 12. And verse 13 uses the words him and his, these pronouns, because we're not talking about the pages of Scripture. We're talking about what? We're talking about a person. Second, the context for these verses, right? What someone told me one time, the three most important rules for Bible interpretation are context, context, context. Well, what's the context for Hebrews 4, 12, and 13? Has the author of Hebrews been promoting Scripture to his readers? No, he has been promoting the person of Jesus Christ to his readers. And so prior to Hebrews 4, 12, the context is the greater rest that they can have in Christ what's the context after these verses? Look in verse 14. It begins with the words, since then we have a great high priest showing that he had been talking about what in the previous two verses? Not the pages of scripture, but this great high priest. He says, since then we have a great high priest because he's been describing the greatness of that high priest in verses 12, 13. 12 and 13. Third, the end of verse 13, it says, naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So this is about us being judged. 
And this is what's important to understand. We are judged against Scripture, but we are not judged by Scripture itself. Let me say that one more time. We are judged against Scripture, but we are not judged by Scripture. In other words, it's not Scripture that sits on the great white throne in Revelation 20. It's called the judgment seat of Christ versus the judgment seat of Scripture. Unbelievers go before the great white throne where they're judged by Christ. Believers go before the judgment seat of Christ where we are then judged by Christ. And why is that? John 5, 22, the Father judges no one. He has given all judgment to the Son. Every believer and every unbeliever will stand before Christ someday to be judged by Him. But it is a person that judges us versus Scripture itself judging us. So my point is, what is being said in these verses can be attributed to the person of Jesus Christ, but cannot be attributed to um, Scripture itself. Now, the main reason that people, this, this might seem kind of foreign to you. Here's, what, here's what's not foreign to you. It's not foreign to you that Jesus would be referred to as the Word of God, right? If I look at these verses and verse 12 talks about the Word of God, nobody here is going to raise their hand and say, well, that doesn't make sense. I've never heard of Jesus being referred to as the Word of God before. We know that's one of the most common titles for Christ. Where do we see Jesus very clearly being identified as the Word of God? What gospel comes to mind? That's John 1, 1, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then that Word became flesh, or that logos, or that wisdom of God was incarnate, or, or became man, and literally wisdom walked on the earth. I mean, when you're reading Proverbs, and it says that the father was glad about his son, or this is, this is the son that brought pleasure to his father, why when Jesus is, I mean, he is the, he is the, Jesus is the premier example of that son who brings pleasure or gladness to his father. Why is it at Jesus' baptism that the voice of the father rings out except to say that this is the son in whom he's pleased? Or at the, at the transfiguration where Peter is silenced, listen to my son. He is the one who pleases me. Well, when, it, when I say that Jesus is the word of God in Hebrews 4.12, you, you might kind of cringe a little and say, well, maybe if we were in John's gospel, but we're in Hebrews, and in the book of Hebrews, we don't see Jesus being identified as the word of God. Well, interestingly, the book of Hebrews begins very similarly to the gospel of John with Jesus being identified as the word of God. Go ahead and look in Hebrews 1.1 with me. Just turn a few chapters to the left. Hebrews 1.1, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. The word of God was coming forth. And if you just pause right there, I, want you to pre- I just want you to kind of appreciate what transpired through human history building up to the coming of Christ. In the Old Testament, there's this language, the word of God came, the word of God came, the word of God came, Right? I mean, you get to the end of the book of Judges, and it says that there has been no prophet, there has been no teacher, because God was silent. It wasn't until God spoke to who? That the word of God came again, to the boy Samuel, right? Who then rises up because the priesthood through Eli had become so corrupt. So God was not speaking through the days of the judges because the people had committed apostasy and turned from him. But then the word of God comes again, and the word of God keeps coming through the prophets. And as you build through the Old Testament, the word of God came, the word of God came, the word of God came, until finally what? The word of God 
came in the true and greatest sense and that the word of God came from heaven to earth in the person of Jesus Christ. With that in mind, look at verse 2. In these last days, which are the days we live in, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. If you had not read this before, you would expect it to say that God has spoken to us what? Through his Son, as though his Son is the messenger or deliverer of the word. But when it says that the Father has spoken to us by his Son, then the Son is not the messenger, the Son is the message itself. Now the Son has become the Word of God that God wants to deliver. And so my point is, when you reach Hebrews 4, it's not foreign to this book for Jesus to be revealed as the Word. In fact, that's how the very book itself began, with that introduction of Christ. Even before talking about Christ being greater than the prophets or greater than the angels, he is first the word that God wants to speak to his people because he is that message that he has for us. Now, if you, with all that said, sometimes I feel like my wife puts too much confidence in me. We'll be talking. We go over the sermon. It can lead to some fairly lively moments because <laughs> she, she's a, 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 a spiritual woman, a godly wise woman, and she can disagree at times with the things that I've, I've labored over in my office for 30 hours by the time we talk. <laughs> and so um, she'll be disagreeing with me and I'll say you know well I read this in a commentary and then Katie will look at me and she'll say I don't care what any commentary says I care what you say and there's some truth to that but I would also say this we're you know we're, we, we've kind of eclipsed 2,000 years of church history if you happen to come to some revelation there are no commentaries that have said that before no commentators that have ever said that, you might want to consider whether that might not be true, right? Because by, by this point, most people have whatever truths we can glean from Scripture, they have been penned in some commentary. And so if you think you have some insight and you can't find a commentary to support it, then you might want to reconsider that insight. And so, I mean, that was the case for me when looking at this. And there are many commentators who do see the person of Christ in Hebrews 4.12. John Owen I mean, I think we have a high regard for him. He says, I judge, therefore, that it is the person of Christ who is here spoken of in Hebrews 4.12. The attributes in verse 12 properly belong to Jesus and cannot directly be ascribed to Scripture. My Moody Bible commentary says this fits the context as Jesus, the Word, is living, active, sharp, piercing, and thus will judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Lenski said the idea that this refers to the Son, the personal Word, as it does in John 1, 1, is advocated by some of the Greek and many of the Latin fathers. And then the last one, Ellicott said, outside the writings of John's gospel, where the word of God is a title for Jesus, there is no passage in the New Testament in which the word of God is as clearly invested with personal attributes as here in Hebrews 4.12. So, in other words, what some of the commentators are saying, in case you happen to tune out just because I was reading too many of them, is that there are no places in Scripture that describe Scripture doing what this Scripture describes the Word of God doing. Or in other words, there are no places in Scripture that look as though Scripture would do what verse 12 is saying, but there are plenty of places in Scripture that reveal Jesus doing what verse 12 says the Word of God does. For example, look in verse 12, it says, the Word of God discerns the thoughts and intents of the heart. Who 
or what discerns the thoughts and intents of the heart in revelation 2 23 jesus said i am he who searches or discerns the mind and the heart john 2 24 jesus knew all people he needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man which is to say i mean it doesn't say he knew men or new people it actually says he knew what was in man which is to say he could see their what he could see their hearts and that's exactly what we saw solomon doing was revealing the hearts or looking deeply into these women which is why i think it's a picture or a glimpse into christ wisdom the the longer it's unfortunate that it's taken me this long um you know wish i'd have had learned this earlier kate and i were having a conversation the other night and she said you could do that there's nothing wrong with that in fact scripture could support that and i thought there's probably nothing wrong with my behavior that behavior would be acceptable but i know what's in my heart when i do that behavior or i know what motive or intention is behind it and so for example there are definitely things we can do that could be biblical but if our heart is wrong behind it then it's wrong to do it for example we're to confront people could you confront people with the wrong heart absolutely you could say the right things i mean someone could even deserve confrontation but if you were to do it with an ugly or sinful heart i mean we can definitely confront people and have their best interests in mind or confront them just because we're upset with them and my whole point of mentioning that is it's it's becoming convicted that jesus doesn't just care what we do but he cares why we do it or while we're doing it he's also looking at our heart behind it. i mean preaching it's i we know that the lord loves preaching he equips preachers to preach but when when i preach or when anyone preaches there can definitely be bad motives behind it who do we want exalted is it is it pride do we want a pat on the back do we want someone to say that was such a great sermon or is our heart behind preaching or for any home fellowship leader or sunday school teacher for christ to be exalted so you can do something super well but what's what's going on in your heart during that time and my point is jesus knows he sees he sees he sees the motives behind it just like hebrews 4 12 is saying he's able to discern the thoughts and intentions of the heart he's able to look deeply into us between joints and marrow and so forth now speaking of those harlots if we take our minds back to them since that is what solomon did he rightly divided between these two women to discern the good and evil between them i doubt that this was the first instance of solomon using the wisdom that god gave him i could be wrong but my suspicion is this is not the first feat of wisdom from solomon there were other feats of his wisdom that took place before this and there were definitely other feats of his wisdom that occurred after this but for some reason this is the account that god chose of all counts to record for us now i don't know if i'm the only one that felt this way and still sort of feels this way reading this account but what is it about it that's kind of uncomfortable to be honest let's just be honest with each other that, that what it involves what you're kind of like reading it and you're like is that okay did i read that correctly is that two harlots that came to him they're in this brothel they get pregnant that's kind of you don't want to talk about it. it's kind of uncomfortable and you're sort of thinking god gave solomon this wisdom that he he reigned for 40 years there must have been <laughs> lots of other accounts 
of his wisdom that God could have chosen, but this one above all the accounts is the one that he chose to put down on the pages of Scripture for us, which tells me something. Tells me that it's very important. And the part that's surprising or perhaps is even shocking is that it involves these harlots. 1 Kings 3.12, you don't have to turn back there, but it says there's been nobody like Solomon before him, and there will be nobody like him after him until Christ comes. Now, since Solomon is the greatest king in the world, nobody like him before, nobody like him after, and there's not going to be, I mean, and he's the king of the greatest nation, I kind of look at this and I think, isn't this a little below his pay grade? Wasn't there somebody else who could have handled this so that he doesn't have to deal with it? But for me, there have been accounts that I've had familiarity with that perhaps I was uncomfortable with, or if I'm honest with you, maybe didn't even like. But then as I reflected on them more, I began to greatly appreciate sometimes even what I didn't like about it before. And this is one of those accounts, because here's what I would say to you. This shows that Solomon made himself available to everyone. If you had what maybe years ago I wanted, which was for it to be, I suppose, two famous people or two powerful people or two rich people or two influential people to come to Solomon, then that communicates something. That communicates who gets to approach the throne. That communicates who has access to the king. And when you see two harlots... To me, this brings us to lesson three. Anyone, anyone can approach Jesus' throne. Anyone can approach Jesus' throne. So there's these wonderful ways that Solomon looks like Christ, and this is one of the greatest. What was one of the strongest criticisms of Jesus during his earthly ministry? Luke 15, 1, the tax collectors and the sinners are all drawing near to him or approaching him. The Pharisees and the scribes started grumbling, saying, this man receives sinners, he eats with them. And so when we think about individuals being able to approach Christ, I don't know if it's prefigured in any better way than right here in 1 Kings 3 when we see these harlots go to him. So if you're ever talking to someone, and I'll say this, and I, and I hope you'll share this with them, and someone says to you, well, I don't feel like I can go to Christ because I'm to this or I'm to that or I don't, see he, I don't think he would receive me. The fault for that is not with Christ. The fault for that thinking resides entirely with that person. When these women approached Solomon, he was able to demonstrate his wisdom. Jesus is greater than Solomon. Look a few verses later in Hebrews 4.16. Hopefully you're still in Hebrews 4 to see what we receive as we approach him. Hebrews 4, 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And so when we approach Jesus, we're able to receive two things. It says we receive mercy and it says we find grace. And the way this is worded is very fitting. Since we're sinners, what do we need more than anything else? What do we need to receive more than anything else because we're sinners? We need to receive mercy. Mercy is not receiving the punishment we deserve, considering all the sins we've committed. What could we need more than mercy? 
from the Lord. And then it also says we find grace. Grace is unmerited favor. Grace is receiving kindness that we haven't earned or that we don't deserve. And this is why it's worded so perfectly, since we can't, since you can't earn grace, all you can do is find it by approaching the throne of the great high priest. Jesus said this, referring to himself, the queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. And so as I reflected this week on the greatness of Jesus, or the ways in which Jesus is greater than Solomon, I was somewhat moved. I don't mean this as a criticism of Solomon. Solomon is applauded in scripture for his greatness. So I have no criticism of him, but I have a tremendous commendation of Christ, which is this. These women came to Solomon, and they were able to get wisdom. That's a wonderful thing to be able to receive when you go to someone. But how much greater is Jesus that when we go to him, we can, as it says, receive mercy, we can find grace. I mean, how much greater is what Jesus offers us than what these um, harlots were offered by Solomon. And so they were able to approach Solomon when they needed help. They were able to go to Solomon during their time of need. But since Jesus is greater than Solomon, how much more comfortable, or as the verse says, confident should we be approaching him, the true and greater Solomon, and the mercy and the grace that we're able to receive from him. Father, we thank you for that reality that we can boldly and with confidence approach the the throne of your son to receive mercy from him, to receive Uh, to find grace from him. We thank you for that, for the great high priest we have in Christ. We thank you for the windows we have into his rule and reign as shown through Solomon in 1 Kings 3. Help us to grow uh, daily in our appreciation and thankfulness for your son and what he's done. We continue to bring Jude before you. We think of him in the hospital and ask for wisdom for the doctors. We come to the throne on behalf of Pastor Nathan and Jill, seeking grace and mercy for them, and that you would strengthen Jude's body and protect him and give, even at this time, supernatural peace to Pastor Nathan and Jill. And we pray all these things in your son's name. Amen.